Well, it's 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 been a tough world because we've been living in we've been living among nations where the competitive advantage comes from printing money to finance a military adventure. And we've been living in nations where we have to compete with those, with those nations. And, mm-hmm. and again, Ger- Germany took the initiative in world war one, financed it on credit. And uh, then a bunch of other nations had to respond. Yeah. But ultimately if you have a system that even if it works for a couple centuries, it's based on, okay, there's only one loophole, which is that if you happen to go to war, then you can print as much money as you want. Well, right. eventually someone's just going to take advantage of it. Of course. And so this drive to remove loopholes is so old. I want to bring up Peel's Act, which I've become kind of fascinated by. It's a Bank Charter Act of 1844. It's kind of the original Bitcoin in that it was an attempt to create like iron shackles. It is really an attempt at the Ulysses contract. I, mm. I look at, I've been looking at the, the desire to print money is like um, in Poltergeist mm. where it's like the mm. light is it's, and, and you have the, like that the Dr. Lesh is like, she's, she's count counseling um, the mom. She's like, tell Carol Ann to stay away from the light. And the mom's like, maybe it's a way out. And Dr. Lesh is like, it, it is a way out, but not for her. Tell her quickly. And then the mom's like, stay away from the light. The light is dangerous. Don't go near the light. Don't even look at the light. So that's, that's, how, every, that's how every person, every government is in a time of calm. But when you get into a crisis, then suddenly you're that next scene where the exorcist lady is like, cross over children. All are welcome. Go into the light. There's peace and serenity in the light. And then Craig T. Nelson's like, you said, don't go into the light. No matter what, don't go into the light. And that's what it is. During a period of crisis, suddenly everyone's like, okay, let's go into the light. We said, don't go into the light, but let's go into the light. Peel's Act put a hard limit on the amount of currency in the Bank of England. It separated the bank into two halves. There was the issue department and the banking department. And the issue department, their whole job was to issue money. And they could issue 15 million pounds on government debt. And that's it. That was, it was a definite number. It wasn't a ratio. There's no, there's no, you couldn't mess with the number. And any notes, any banknotes, the, the Bank of England was given exclusive rights to issue banknotes. They could issue the only money in the whole country. And any notes they wanted to issue over the 15 million on, on government debt had to be backed one for one by metal. And there was no way around it. That was the, it was a law. And it was a law that was a reaction to a ton of, it was, it was, it was a reaction to what had come in the 50 years prior where there had been, you know, banks could create notes. Some banks couldn't, there was inflation, there was deflation. And they're like, we need some rules we can count on. And so they created this like ironclad number. Here's the number. I mean, it's kind of was like the early 21 million meme. It was like, there's 15 million pounds and everything else is one for one based on metal. And of course, the act was suspended in three years later during a panic in 1847. (laughs) It was suspended in 1866 during a panic or 1857 and 1866. I mean, it was, it was, it was the, the law was literally broken by the government three times in the next 20 years. 
Right. Wow. Yeah. So, so we've been trying, we've been imagining, I guess, this Ulysses contract for ourselves at scale and we've attempted to implement it, but it, I mean, this, this, this history you outline, it highlights how bad we are at doing that. So bad. Yeah. So bad. There's a quote from Badgett, and this is a book that he wrote in 1873. He writes, we are living amid the vestiges of old controversies. We speak their language, though we are dealing with different thoughts and different facts. For more than 50 years, from 1793 down to 1844, there was a keen controversy as to the public duties of the bank. It was said to be the manager of the paper currency, and on that account, Many expected good from it. Others said it did great harm. Others again said it could do neither good nor harm. But the whole period, there was an incessant and fierce discussion. That discussion was terminated by the Act of 1844. By that act, the currency manages itself. The entire working is automatic. The Bank of England plainly does not manage, cannot even be said to manage the currency anymore. This craving for this automatic mechanism, I'm I'm, I'm speaking as myself now, the quote Mm. is over, but... This craving for automaticity is so deep and has been tried so admirably. I mean, he writes, the the Bank of England does not manage, cannot even be said to manage the currency anymore. Look where we are. It's staggering. I mean, in that lens, the automaticity of Bitcoin is really something of ultimate essence in some ex- in many ways right we've been trying to figure this out forever <laughs> ever since mm-hmm. we st- ever since we figured out capitalism basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like we figured out money emerges capitalism which i guess was not known as capitalism so maybe the 1800s but once we figured out the value of capitalism say like, okay this system works great but we need a way to make the money manage itself, as he says here, the, to make the entire working automatic. Yeah, pre and, and so that we're so that our future selves are bound to our past agreements. Yes, that is Satoshi, right? That's what Satoshi did. Yeah, and I feel like if you if you if you take your lessons from the past, you have to learn that. I mean. Because Zabo called this like the difference between like wet, I think called a wet code versus dry code. Yeah, dry code. I think that was his his term for it. And that, you know, ultimately these were just laws. And 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 I guess like when you when you jump onto Bitcoin Twitter and you see some crazy Bitcoiner claiming some crazy shit that's not related to Bitcoin that you wholeheartedly disagree with, you should be super, super joyful mm-hmm. that that person loves Bitcoin as much as you do. Because what that means is that no group of Bitcoiners will ever be able to agree on a cause worthy enough to change the money supply. You might have like a contingent of 10% that agree on one crazy cause, but you're gonna have another 10% that agree on the opposite. And they'll never be able to come together. And that's actually the beauty of it. There's such a diversity of views. I mean, I disagree with Bitcoiners on so many things. 
so many things. And in the political spectrum, I disagree with pretty much everybody on something. But that's actually great because it means that there's going to be no one war, no one crisis that causes us all to come together and say, let's change the rules. Right. <laughs> this is, yeah, that's another excellent frame is that the 21 million is finally something human beings can agree upon. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, finally. It's, yeah. We've been fighting literally forever. That's all we've ever been doing is fighting. And, you know, we've had consensus established temporarily, you know, to greater or lesser extent here and there, but it, it, at the base layer protocol globally, we've never had something that like this, you know, just like this global fixed consensus on an uh, automatic monetary system that is capped at 21 million. It's, it's, it is a rabbit hole. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, one of the things that like, um, um, British counterparties couldn't do one thing that businessmen in America and women couldn't do in the 1930s was they couldn't just run a node to enforce the monetary policy of the currency they wanted. So like you really have to be super defensive of your ability to run a node. And that is why small blocks, I know that the difficulty adjustment gets like a lot of praise for being like the greatest part of the invention of Bitcoin. And I think it deserves that, but small blocks, you really, you really got to marvel at the, the power of small blocks to, mm -hmm. to make node running possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Decentralization via small blocks and adaptation via the difficulty adjustment mm -hmm. makes it a swarm creature of some kind. And again, it gives it, it, it run the, the ability the ability to run a node and control which software which version of the protocol you run is our modern version of convertibility yes which is the only vote that actually matters mm -hmm. yeah there's some interesting side notes that i feel like are worth worth mentioning there is you know by 1873 nine countries were on the gold standard. Um, by 1890, it was 22 countries. 1900, there were 29. And by 1912, right before the war, there were 49 countries on the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And specifically not on the silver standard. Silver was um, demonetized in Germany, US, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, Japan, and the Latin Monetary Union by 1870. But this is one, one thing that's really interesting that like in the gold-silver debate, I think it's sort of relevant to the Bitcoin shitcoin debate. Between 1811 and 1880, silver production did increase. And I think that's like people have always cited the like stock to flow of silver as not being as high as gold. However, between 1811 and 1880, even though silver production increased fivefold, gold actually gold production increased much faster mm. than silver during that period. Um, if you break that down into smaller time spans from 1801 to 1810, silver production was 50 times that of gold. So again, a lot more silver entering the market, mm -hmm. but 
1841 to 1845, silver production was reduced to only 15 times that of gold and 51 to 60, 1860, silver production was only five times that of gold. And so it was like the rate of production of increase in gold, if anyone was like really paying attention, was like, oh, wow, gold is actually being produced. The rate of increase, even though sil more silver is being made, the rate of increase of gold production is increasing a lot faster. In fact, the rate of gold production due to like the 1850 California gold discoveries was so alarming that Switzerland um naples spain india and belgium they all demonetized gold in 1850 in favor of silver they're like oh my god it's going to be a, all this gold's coming out of the market they thought gold was a shit coin and then 20 years later in 1870 they then switched and demonetized silver for gold and then a bunch of silver entered the market and then demand reservation reservation demand for silver went down but the so then you have to ask, well, if, if all these countries were scared by the rate of increase of gold production, so much so that they demonetized gold and then monetized it again, it's, it's really about network effect. Mm. That the international gold standard grew because it, it improved access to international capital markets with the core countries that were on the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a side note, but I feel like stock to flow over a shorter time span isn't everything. It's about who's using it and how much power they have a little bit. And it's just an interesting side note from the debate between gold and silver. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very interesting. There's a gravity to it, right? I mean, um, you have a, is this a quote from gold in the modern, is this another book? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll just read this quote here because I think it's interesting. It says, support for the international gold standard probably grew because it provided improved access to the international capital markets of the core countries. Countries were eager to adhere to the standard because they believed that gold convertibility would be assigned to creditors of sound government finance and the future ability to service debt. I mean, yeah, that is the network effect, right? That's amazing. Yeah. So you have that, like people were like, well, we could we could continue with silver. It seems like silver is going to be holding its own versus gold, but we really want to be able to borrow internationally and we want to be able to do international. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to remember to be, to be able to do international trade, no one accepted your local dollars in another country, right. your local paper. So in order to perform international trade, you actually had to have money on deposit in the country you were doing business in, and it had to be gold. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't have to be, but more and more it was gold. Right. And so you had to have gold and you had to have gold deposited in that country and you had to have a, um, you know, a ledger balance with a bank there so that you could quickly, quickly do business. It just was like, it, 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 it is an example of how a shelling point came into being. Yes. Yeah. It speaks to the importance of, you know, people often say Bitcoin is money for enemies, mm -hmm. but this idea of, of neutrality in the money is so important because yes, we are inherently antagonistic, right? Again, back to scarcity. There's a limited number of things and there's an unlimited amount of wants. How do we resolve that? Well, we can do it a number of ways, but the, the protocol, the rules, the peaceable ways we, we choose to adopt, they need to be neutral. They don't need to favor you or me. If they favor you 
over me, then the system's going to rip itself apart, right? People will abdicate from the game. They won't play the game. Um, it, it really is so simple. Yeah. Yet we can't do it as humans. We cannot do it. We could not do it, I guess. And finally, we needed this. We needed this implementation. We needed Bitcoin, something that we ourselves cannot saw off the very branch on which we rest kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, every, anytime, anytime someone who for their short-term gain contravenes the rules, they ultimately destroy the system that keeps everything going. Exactly. And so we have to, I think this Ulysses contract is a great way of thinking about it. You have to, you have to be binding your future self to the agreement you make now, no matter yes. what. And I think that that actually will, that will create pain. I mean, there's just no question that mm -hmm. people will suffer because they will have to adhere to the agreements that they make. And that will uh, be instructive for the people who survive the pain. Yes. Yes. Well, it allows, again, pain is information, right? It allows the information to propagate with high fidelity versus applying this monetary analgesic every time something happens that you don't want to happen. It's like, hard money or, or Bitcoin more specifically actually forces you to be informed by the pain. Whatever went wrong, you have to now absorb the lessons from that and act accordingly. You can't just abdicate responsibility. Or elect someone who wants to abdicate on your behalf. Right, exactly. Which even the, the idea of an election is kind of an abdication in a way. Um, yeah, it gets very, very interesting because it calls everything into question. You're like, well, now that we have Bitcoin, do we need all of these other institutions to the same degree that we did before? I'm not so yeah. sure. I mean, I'm looking at this node on my desk. It's a Raspberry Pi. It's super small. It's a little thing. And it, it performs all of the transaction validation and propagation functions a giant bank does and it's this right. little thing it doesn't do everything my bank does it doesn't do the customer service it doesn't mm. create loans for me you know all this other stuff but some of the basic function of validating the transaction and broadcasting them to the network it does and it's a 200 dollars box and it's running on my desk and we only need i mean the bitcoin network could function with not too many of these Mm -hmm. A couple. Yeah. But everyone can run one. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's the Jeff Booth thesis. Like I'm staring at it. I, I look at this little box with its little red light. And I'm like, this replaces 70,000 employees at a giant commercial bank. It's a, yeah. It is. Bitcoin is the automaticity of money. Right. Yeah. Uh, or perhaps even of, I don't know, it's something even deeper than money in a way, because it is an institution in and unto itself. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of combined the concept, this ephemeral concept of money we've ascribed to different commodities or assets. And it's combined the social institution we have used to scale cooperation and trust. And it's really like, it's combined that into one implementation, 
which is, yeah, it's just so hard to put words to it almost. What, what is this thing? It has to be international too. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, a lot of, a lot of economic writing separates the concept of like the domestic economy from the international economy. That, that, mm-hmm. That's, that's a false, that's a false, um, there is one economy, one species, one no, planet. There's one economy in the world and it's international. Mm-hmm. There isn't a domestic and, and the, the concept of like thinking of your local country's economy as separate from the rest of the world is in fact an outgrowth of these fiat monies competing yes, against each other exactly. because the creation of a fiat money that is separate and not convertible at a predefined ratio is an attempt to isolate your local economy from the rest of the world. But that is an impossibility. There's mm-hmm. one economy on the world and it's the world economy. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's worth getting into the really fine points of like, well, how did, how did this work? Like we talk about gold was a commitment mechanism, but there was money that existed on top of it. I feel like it's actually really interesting and worth it to get into like the nitty gritty of, well, how, how, how did that balance out the economic forces between countries and the reason why it's worth it is not just for its own sake, because it will give, it, it, it allows people to really understand why central banks were created and what the interest rate tool was invented for. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but like the protocol of the interest rate tool, it is embedded in the gold standard and what, how the gold standard worked on like a, on a granular level. So let's get into that. Let's get into the nitty gritty of, of the exchange standard. And the exchange standard is different from, there's actually sort of three flavors of the gold standard. There's the, the, the gold standard where coins are all, there's coins are issued as money, notes are issued as money, they're interchangeable. And any, any, any participant in the economy can walk into any bank or any depository institution and exchange their fiduciary media for gold. That's just like, that's the gold standard. That is the coin standard, that's the gold standard. The bullion standard is, okay, you can't just exchange your notes for coins because we don't make them, but if you have enough cash, you can get one of these 400 ounce bullion bars. That was a neutered version of the gold standard. And the, just the fact is that not, not everybody had enough money to buy bullion, right? as it's called. They couldn't get just like a coin, a dollar, a pound. So centralizing, the, basically. Yeah, it was, the, it was the beginning of the centralizing. And the exchange standard was you might hold, you might hold credits in foreign money and you might hold gold, you might hold both. So it's your you're using foreign exchange as part of your country's reserves and and you're also using metal. So, but, but um, there are a few key attributes of the system that, that were really important to make it work. Now, one is total freedom of trade mm-hmm. and minimal or no tariffs, free movement of capital. And free movement of capital really came from the fact that under the gold standard, you could bring gold and to any for coinage and melt it down and have it made into coins pretty much free of charge. So like 
gold was just the money that moved, you could, you didn't have to have the local currency. You could have the raw metal or you could mine it yourself. You know, you could be a miner, but money really was this universal substance on an atomic level that was just as good in one place as it was in another. And what that led to was there was really a lack of arbitrage. If you think about it, if all currencies are pegged, then there's no currency arbitrage. Um, I'm going to read a quote from the book. Under the traditional gold standard, the short-term capital flow governed by interest rate and foreign exchange arbitrage was, as a rule, the regulator of the balance of payments with gold movements serving as the ultimate balancing items. The solidarity of money markets, as it was called at the time, was maintained by a narrow circle of highly skilled professionals, and there was scant incentive for the public to speculate in gold or foreign exchange when the fluctuations were confined within the range of this thing they called the gold points. Mm. Short-term interest rate differentials between countries didn't attract any more than a tiny fraction of each country's liquid resources. So there wasn't just a lot of betting on which way is the currency gonna go? All currencies were fixed. And there is a corollary to this rule it, it, there's a huge however, but, but before we get to that, however, we have to go even like a little bit further into exactly how the exchange standard worked and the gold standard worked. So like by 1914, the gold standard had spread to these 49 countries and there was universally accepted was the idea that there was an expectation of a permanent exchange rate stability. Gold could be minted and melted for private use at no cost to the owner. And there was a full freedom of circulation inside and outside of each country. And all non-gold money was redeemable in gold. So like any type of any type of paper. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. There was, um, in 1920, there was this committee called the Cunliffe Committee, and they, they were like, the war was over, and they're trying to figure out, how do we get back on the gold standard? How did it work? And so they issued this big report, and it's actually really instructive if you try and figure out how the gold standard technically, what was the protocol? What was like the UTXOs of the gold standard, and how were they exchanged? Um, there's a couple sections from this that I want to read. And I have to 
there'll be one tangent. It, it seems like in every, I don't know if you go through this, Robert, but in every great passage that I'm like, I'm, this is explaining the universe to me. There's always like one sentence that I just don't understand. <laughs> like, I know that there's a tremendous secret being revealed and I still can't, can't understand what one part of it is. So this is um, from section four of the Cunliffe report. And it goes like this. When exchanges were favorable, gold flowed freely into this country, being England, and an increase of legal tender money was accompanied by the development of trade. So you understand what we said before, the Bank of England was under this uh, Peels Act where if they wanted more money, there had to be gold to back it up on one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. So when there was an export surplus, meaning they were exporting goods and getting more gold, then there was more money in the local economy, when mm -hmm. exchanges, I'm gonna read again, when exchanges were favorable, gold flowed freely into this country and an increase in legal tender accompanied the development of trade. Mm -hmm. Now here's the sentence that hung me up for a few weeks. When the balance of trade was unfavorable and the exchanges were adverse, it became profitable to export gold. I guess I just was stuck on weight. It became profitable to export gold. like. I, I get, I get it roughly, but it didn't intuitively make sense on like a mechanical level. Like I can say like, I'm sending a UTXO to you and you're like, I sort of get that. But like, unless, unless someone really explains UTXOs, you just, you know, on a general level, what it might mean. But I really want to understand this one sentence when the balance of trade was unfavorable and the exchanges were adverse, it became profitable to export gold. So I found another passage from Badgett that made this whole thing uh, understandable to me. And he's describing in this passage why Badgett is describing why the Bank of England, it, it's, it's so relevant to everything. He's, he's describing why the Bank of England can affect the short-term value of money, but they can't affect the long-term average which is actually the conundrum that we are still in. I think that the Fed has the ability to affect interest rates short-term and to affect the volume of money maybe short-term, but overall, I don't, I don't think they can, they can't help our balance of trade. I mean, we're in a hole and they can't get us out of it. Mm -hmm. So Badgett was explaining this and it explains that sentence about why it became profitable to export gold. So he, he, Badgett goes right into a, a, a what if. If a bank with a monopoly of note issue suddenly lends, say, 2 million pounds more than usual. So this is, he's talking, he's talking about a bank creating credit. It causes a proportionate increase of trade and an increase of prices because the persons to whom that 200 pound was lent, they didn't borrow to lock it up. They borrow it in the language of the market to operate with. That is, they try to buy things with it. If you're taking out a loan because you're paying, you're going to buy with it. And that new attempt to buy, that new demand raises prices. And this rise of prices has three consequences. First, it makes everyone else want to borrow money because prices are going up. Secondly, it is an effectual demand for the increased price of, for example, a railway stock enables those who wish to borrow more money upon the value of the railway stock. Mm -hmm. So it increases asset prices, assets are collateral, assets are collateral. And so now because the value of your collateral went up, you can borrow more money. So them lending more money 
creates the ability for more people to borrow because asset prices go up. Continuing with the with the with the the from budget, the common practice is to lend a certain portion of the market value of such securities, and if that value increases, the amount of the usual loan to be obtained on them increases too. In this way, therefore, an artificial reduction in the value of money, meaning creating new loans, mm-hmm. creating money, an artificial reduction in the value of money causes a new augmentation of the demand for money and thus restores that value to its natural level. So there's a self-balancing where we lend money, money goes out into the economy, people buy things, the value of those things goes up. So more people want to borrow more money and then things are sort of worth what they were in real terms because now more people have the money, more people have more money and you don't really have an advantage anymore. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, of course. It's just the the redistribution comes in the unevenness of that inflation, right. that monetary inflation. Right, yeah. right, right. But at the end of the day, it does balance itself out. Yeah, because it's so not it's you're too- not creating anything new. It's so obvious. Right. <laughs> right. Continuing from Badgett, in these two ways, sudden loans by an issuer of notes, though they may temporarily lower the value of money, do not lower it permanently because they generate their own counteraction. And this they do whether the notes issued are convertible into coin or not. But in the case of convertible notes, there is a third effect which works in the same direction and works more quickly. A rise of prices confined to one country tends to increase imports Mm -hmm. because other countries can obtain more for their goods if they send them there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Prices go up locally. And so you're going to start buying internationally because the price is cheaper in gold terms and people want to sell into your market. So a a rise of prices confined to one country tends to increase imports because other countries can obtain more for their goods if they send them there. And it discourages exports because a merchant who would have gained a profit before the rise by buying here in England to sell it again will not gain so much if any profit after that rise, meaning if you're an exporter, you're buying locally. Well, the prices went up in gold terms and you're selling it abroad. You, you paid more for locally. There's no more profit to send it around. By this augmentation of imports, the indebtedness of this country, the, I'm going to say it again, by the augmentation of imports, meaning you're, you're, you're bringing goods in and sending gold out, the indebtedness of the country is augmented. And by the diminution of exports, the proportion of that indebtedness, which is paid in the usual way, is decreased as well. The, the indebtedness is usually paid. If, if, you're in, if you're in debt, if you're a debtor, you can get out of debt by set. You don't have to send the money. You can send them things you make. But mm-hmm. if you can't export because the value of your currency has gone down relative to gold, then you can't export either. So the, in, the, 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 um, the indebtedness of the country is augmented. And by this diminution of exports, the proportion of that indebtedness, which is paid in the usual way, is decreased also. In consequence, and this is where it all comes together, this is a large, there is a larger balance to be paid in bullion. The store in the bank or banks keeping the reserve is diminished, and the rate of interest must be raised by them to stay the efflux. And now I understand the sentence it became profitable to export gold. Strict convertibility at fixed ratios is the, is the key, is why this works, is that if prices go up locally, then you can buy the same goods in gold internationally 
that you might have bought domestically or sold internationally. Mm -hmm. And so the more profitable move is to send your gold abroad to buy the goods right. rather than buy them locally. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, gold then is this count back to this. Didn't we describe gold at some point as a countermeasure or uh, anti-value? I think mm -hmm. money, money is an anti-value. Yeah, money has an anti-value where it's actually, uh, it's a counterweight to these economic flows, right? When there's a, there's a uh, asymmetry, I guess, between two different economies, it's actually balancing it out through the profit motive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you buy internationally by sending gold overseas mm -hmm. because your local paper is worth less because more loans were written. And mm -hmm. the, the loans where the real new money is created drove up the value of the money. I mean, drove down the value of the money and drove mm -hmm. up the prices of the goods. But because they're convertible to gold at a fixed rate, right. it means that the local regime, which is writing the loans and decreasing the value of the paper currency, they are not decreasing the value of the gold. It's, it now has, it still has the same purchasing power abroad, though it doesn't, right. you're actually lowering gold's purchasing power domestically mm -hmm. by doing this. And yes. that's where convertibility is so important. So now, now that we understand the sentence of how it became profitable to export gold, now we can get back into the Cunliffe report of how it worked. And maybe just so starting reread that sentence one more time. Yeah. Um, that you originally okay. read, which is when the exchanges were favorable, gold flowed freely into this country in regards to England and an increase of legal tender money accompanied the development of trade. When the balance of trade was unfavorable and the exchanges were adverse, it became profitable to export gold. So, I mean, the visualization I have in my mind is just that the gold is flowing to where it's priced properly, right? Because you're effectively, mm -hmm. you increase the paper supply of money in your country, you've now diminished, you've uh, diminished the uh, gold price per unit of paper. So then the gold wants to flow mm -hmm. uh, out of your country to where it's priced mm -hmm. more properly. Mm -hmm. So then it goes on. Do you want to continue? Yes. The, the would-be exporter of gold bought his gold. This, so, so now, so now you're, you're an exporter and you're like, okay, okay. Purchasing power domestically has gone down. I want to buy internationally and I can't buy with, with my local fiat paper. So I need to get, I need to turn in the gold. I need to get my hands on the gold. Mm -hmm. So here he describes the mechanism. The would-be exporter of gold bought his gold from the bank of England and paid for it by writing a check on his account. The bank obtained the gold from the issue department in exchange for the notes by removing from the banking department's banking reserve for, for in exchange for notes, which are removed from the banking department's banking reserve with the result that its liabilities to its depositors and its banking reserve were reduced by an equal amount and the ratio of reserve to liabilities consequently fell. So just to go back over that, you're an exporter, you want to send gold overseas. So now you go to, to the bank of England where you have an account, you turn in notes or you write a check on your account they actually, and you're going to withdraw gold. Well, because Appeals Act, as soon as you withdraw the gold, those notes have to leave circulation. Mm -hmm. So the notes are effectively destroyed once the gold leaves. So now, just, just to like put it in a number so you understand. So let's say that the, the, the bank had 50 million in reserves and 100 million in liability. 
least. Those numbers are actually much larger than the bank had at the time, but just simple. 50 million in reserves. And because they're a fractional reserve bank, 100 million in liabilities versus you know checking accounts, deposit accounts they've created. So the ratio is 50% of reserves to liabilities. Well, you go in, you're a huge exporter and you take out 25 million. So they give you 25 million in gold and they destroy 25 million in liabilities. Now you'd think, well, they, they destroyed the same amount as you took out. So it mm -hmm. should still be the same ratio, but it's not. It was 50 to 100. Now it's because you took out 25 million. Now they have 25 million in reserves and 75 million in liabilities. Mm -hmm. Now they're down to a reserve ratio of 33%. And so this process, the lowering of this ratio suddenly puts the bank at greater risk of not being able to meet its liabilities because they have to take the same number of, of reserves out of circulation to liabilities. It actually, it, it, it lowers the reserve ratio by, by taking the same numbers out. And, and it wasn't until I actually put those numbers on paper that I understood why it worked that way mathematically. If the process was repeated, this is going back to the Cunliffe report. If the process was repeated sufficiently, if the process was repeated sufficiently often to reduce the ratio in a degree considered dangerous, the bank raised its rate of discount. The raising of the discount rate had the immediate effect of retaining money here, which would otherwise have been remitted abroad, and of attracting remittances from abroad to take advantage of the higher rate, thus checking the outflow of gold and then and even reversing the stream. So mm. the bank is saying, okay, we're going to pay more on deposits. So if some people, if a bunch of people are taking gold out to buy things overseas, the bank's like, okay, well, we're going to pay more interest. So like shipping, shipping gold costs something. I mean, it's not free to withdraw your gold and go buy overseas. There's insurance, there's shipping, there's like physical, physical transport. So like it might cost you half a percent of the value of a transaction to ship a lot of gold overseas. Well, if the Bank of England and there was actually a point, I think, in 1866, where they decided to raise interest rates in increment of one whole percent at a time. It had a huge effect on their ability to retain gold domestically, mm. because, you know, um, if they were going to raise rates by only, you know, 25 basis points, well, it might still be profitable to ship the gold overseas. If you're going to give me a whole percentage point, I'm going to keep the gold here. So now you see what value interest rates had. People mm -hmm. could, people could. If, if you wrote too many loans at home for too low of an interest rate, that would increase the local, that would decrease the value of, of your local currency, increase the local prices, and suddenly became profitable to export gold. You need to keep the gold here and you can't reverse the balance of trade. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is keep some of the gold here. And so you raise interest rates right. to try and keep some of the gold at home. Right. But that compounds their uh, fractional reserve issue, right? Because now it does paying. because yeah. the gold they that's exactly right. Because the gold they keep there isn't theirs. It's right. actually this yeah. is their liabilities. Yes. Yeah. It's so this is such a mathematical or economic uh, unfolding of like the consequences of a lie effectively, right? Like you just when, whenever you run a fractional reserve, it just uh, festers and gets worse it, it, as it appears here, as you try to fix it, right? They're trying to fix the problem, yeah. but they're making it worse. Yes, exactly. And, and, then it's, and then it's addressed in the Cunliffe report. The next sentence is, 
if the adverse conditions of the exchanges was due not merely to seasonal fluctuations, but to circumstances tending to create a permanently adverse trade balance, it is obvious, they said it, it is obvious <laughs> that the procedure above described would not have been sufficient. It would have resulted in the creation of a volume of short dated, short dated indebtedness to foreign countries, which would have been in the end disastrous to our credit and the position of London as the financial center of the world. I mean, like they're describing and saying it's obvious that if you abuse this tool, it will have disastrous implications. Cut to what have we done in the United States? We've abused this tool. That's all we've done. Yes. And the tool was invented for this one temporary purchase, which is, which is to smooth out seasonal fluctuations in the trade balance. Not permanent ones, but we're living in a permanent trade balance world now, a trade imbalance world. Just to go on from the report, the raising of the bank's discount rate and the steps taken to make it effective in the market necessarily led to a general rise of interest rates and a restriction of credit. New enterprises were therefore postponed and the demand for constructional materials and other capital goods lessened. The consequent slackening of, an employ of employment also diminished the demand for consumable goods while holders of the stocks of commodities carried largely with borrowed money being confronted with an increase of interest charges, if not with actual difficulty in renewing loans and with the prospect of falling prices, tended to press their goods on a weak market. The result was a decline in general prices in the home market, which by checking imports and stimulating exports, corrected the adverse trade balance, which was the primary cause of the difficulty. I mean, the system is beautiful. It is kind of beautiful. You're like, oh, we have this system. It's automatic. It works. It's, there's all this kind of feedback where, yes. okay, so you increase credit that attracts gold to the country. And not only does it attract gold, credit is now more expensive. So people who have taken out a bunch of loans, they can't afford to refinance their loans. So they have to sell their inventory. Selling their inventory brings prices down, prices coming down, keeps people from having to export. It's no longer profitable to export gold. It was like, it's like the way that I love Bitcoin, the way that I love the mechanism, I love the gold standard. It's as beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it, it completely, I mean, it works if we actually adhere to it, but we don't ever adhere to it. Right. Right. So because of the, as we back to the, the quote on institutions, it's not. It's the minds that govern the institutions, not the rules. Yeah, yeah. And so it's corruption. Basically, it's a corruptible standard because in order to scale gold, we had we used man-made paper institutions, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. You can't. And the trap you know, doors were pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Just, just stop convertibility unless people demand it. But if people stop demanding it. The, 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 the pitfall is pretty, pretty clear. Yeah. And what a gorgeous historical vignette though, for the possibilities on a Bitcoin standard. Cause now it's like, take this thing that worked really well in the short term, like before the yeah. corruption set in and now make that, you know, first of all, perfect the properties of the underlying money 
and then make the social institution itself incorruptible or more resistant, maximally resistant to corruption insofar as anything humans have created to date. And it's it's potentially really beautiful, right? Like, I mean, if we had, if we had perfect convertibility, let's say we still had fiat currencies with perfect convertibility to Bitcoin, the, the cost of shipping Bitcoin overseas is nothing. Right. And so the, the smallest changes in an interest rate mm-hmm. would be able to affect, I, I, think, I think there would be zero, literally zero foreign exchange speculation if, oh, if it would all go currencies away. would go away completely. Yeah. And that's a $5 trillion daily volume, I think, is the last time I look at the numbers, marketplace. That's purely rent seeking. It does it adds mm-hmm. no productive capacity to the economy whatsoever, yet it is the largest market in the world. And that's a consequence of fiat. That would all go away. I think that would all go away. I think you could still have fiat currencies if, if they were if they were convertible. And then this this system, which is actually pretty, it's a pretty spectacular system. Yeah. You know, your money, your, 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 your Bitcoin is good anywhere. And you know what, if you're a, if you're a government and you want to have a little bit of elasticity to, to, to respond in the time of an emergency, sure. Issue a fiat currency that is convertible to Bitcoin, but then, then you have to pay the deflationary price when the crisis is over. That's the only clause that has to be enforced. Forced deflation will solve It'll solve the it'll solve the convertibility problem, and it might solve your trade imbalance as well. If you if you understand this mechanism, if you go into this deflationary period, it could it could solve the trade problem also. Yeah, man. I think. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to go on to just talk about our current dilemma. We have been living with a trade imbalance now for since since we went off gold standard because prices here are too expensive largely because labor here is too expensive mm-hmm. and labor here is too expensive because lower nominal wages here would lead to less consumption which would lead i mean i'm re- recapitulating everything we just learned about mm-hmm. the gold standard less consumption here would lead to less export of dollars meaning we wouldn't it wouldn't be profitable to export dollars anywhere which would lead to lower prices and profits everywhere in the world mm-hmm. which would lead to dollar shortages everywhere because everyone's wow. debts are denominated in dollars yeah and so you go back to the second sentence of Cunliffe, if the condition was due to a permanently adverse trade balance, it would result in the creation of a volume of short-dated indebtedness to foreign countries, which would have been disastrous to our credit. Why is that? Because under the gold standard regime, I mean, you and I sort of already covered this, but I just want to repeat, they offer interest payments by borrowing money from around the world, but then those debts, which they're offering the higher interest rates, they're redeemable in gold. Yeah. So yeah, Higher interest rates attracts more gold, but all that borrowed gold, it can't satisfy both the principal and interest of the borrow itself. Only the tra- only you can only finance that interest cost with a trade surplus. But if you have a trade deficit, there will at some point be a squeeze. Right. You, you know this. It's so interesting. I 
I, I assume the audience is getting a taste for the complexity here, right? This is not something that just is a bottom-up system that emerged, uh, has very complex balancing uh, automaticity, I guess to use the term, mm-hmm. but we tried to overrule that reality via fiat effectively, right? That's what Bretton Woods is, right? We are the global reserve asset redeemable to gold. So still originally honoring uh, the emergent system, but ultimately abandoning it. So it's like this, that basis of the exorbitant privilege being the US dollar, this is now explains, looking at it through this lens, the hollowing out of domestic industry as a result. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wealth disparity. Yep. Emergence of the euro dollar system internationally, because there's a global demand for dollars that exceeds the the supply, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I would argue ultimately to the consequence of global populism and even the hatred towards the US. Like we monopolize this system, but it incur it's not just, you know, it's been argued that it's not just an exorbitant privilege, it's also a detriment because it hurts us as well. It damaged it financialized the economy, it hollowed out the industrial capacity, and then it incurred the vitriol from the world, right? The, I think the world a lot of the world has issues with the US. And if I don't know if you've ever traveled abroad much, like to be American in a lot of countries is it's not you're not greatly received often. Yeah. Um I think it's all rooted in this. It's all rooted in these this twisting of the incentives that we did. I assume somewhat unwittingly, right? It's like it's like trying to seize the short-term gain, but creating a long, a, a, a compounding long-term consequence. Right. We, we started off actually in the Cunliffe, the, the system described in the Cunliffe report, we started off there and we, we did the first part where there was a trade imbalance. And so we started to issue more debt to, to cover what, what was like maybe a seasonal or decade long imbalance. And then we got caught doing that again and again. And exactly mm-hmm. what they said played out. Right. 